Welcome to the very first episode of the Pro Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Serhoff. For the first episode of my podcast, I wanted to bring in my longtime friend, Elvis Burroughs. Elvis is a Bahamian swimmer who was a two-time All-American at the University of Kentucky and a member of the Bahamian Olympic swim team. We cover a range of topics. I had a lot of fun talking to him, and we talk about a bunch of different stuff like what it takes to make an Olympic team, uh, leading into balding and some tips for looking just a little bit better when you fully commit to that, uh, being a little bit too old for TikTok. And then we end with a segment that I call Fitter Faster Fabes, where we cover Elvis's favorite questions that he gets from kids at his Fitter Faster clinics. So let's do this thing. I'm here with Elvis, a longtime friend of mine, a Bahamian Olympic swimmer, and one of my fellow clinicians on the Fitter Faster Swim Tour. Elvis, how are you doing today, man? I'm wonderful, Austin. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's uh, beautiful here in Baltimore, but I imagine the weather's a little nicer uh, down there in or- Orlando. It is. It is nice. It's it's probably nicer than, what, is it snowing over there now? No. <laughs> Dude, we're like halfway up the East Coast. We're right in the middle. It's Listen, about, if it's, you're above Central Florida, it's snowing. Yeah, I guess your whole... Um, like your center of gravity in the United States is a little bit different from mine. Like anything south of Maryland, I feel like it's hot. But anything north, um, anything north of Orlando is snow. Yeah, <laughs> it's just either beach or snow. There's no in between for Elvis Burrow. None. There's yeah. none. My roommates used to make fun of me in college. They would say, "I have like a two degree window of either sweating on the couch or." <laughs> walking around in a, in a fur coat, <laughs> just a delicate window. And then you don't burn either, right? I feel like I remember that from our outdoor clinics. Yeah, I don't sunburn, but, but uh, I was in the Bahamas for, like through the week um, as my Instagram was so heavily influenced. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I peeled a little bit. I, was that a first for you? Um, maybe a... Maybe a second or a, a half, a first and a half. I, I think it's happened before, but I didn't know what it was. Um, so that, that's I just like, thought I was like. So that's like the extreme you know, end for you. Like if I look like a side of bacon, the same experience, you'll just be like peeling a little bit. Yeah. Like I had, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fully shaving my head now, so I'm bald. So like I peeled a little bit on the top of my head and then like at the very tip of my nose. And then like a little bit like on the shoulder blades. So it, it was, it wasn't like I was in pain or anything. I was just kind of like, Oh, coming out of the shower. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, what's that? Like, is that, am I peeling? Is that my, am I shedding skin? Uh, So it wasn't, so I don't know if that's sunburn or uh, like, what is that? I dude, I don't know, but I do want to hone in. (laughs) I do want to hone in on one thing you said. Um, so you're a guy who shaves his head bald. So Bald guy to bald guy, I do an I do a no yeah I know right, uh, I do a no guard trim because it just seems like the razor is a lot of upkeep and I just want to know your routine like how often are you in the bathroom with the shaving cream with the razor, do you use one of those beard trimmers to kind of keep day to day upkeep or how often are you in there, keeping the head smooth and shiny I guess is my main question. 
So that's a good question. Um, so I started out with the no guard um, shave. Well, first of all, we all start in the five stages of boldness. The first one is denial. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah, once you get past the denial part and you're like, you know what, let me let me just shave it as low as I can, and, and but not fully bald. Mm-hmm. And then finally, it's like, F it. Like, just, I'm just going to Michael Jordan it. He pulled it off. I'm going to pull it off. Mm-hmm. So once I crossed over to the Michael Jordan stage, um, I actually went online because I used to go to the barber to have the barber, like, no guard shave me. Mm-hmm. And I would always get, like, really bad razor bumps or, like, um, ingrown hairs. And it was just super uncomfortable for, like, a week and, like, just an ongoing cycle. So finally, I, like, started researching online. like, And, I, and I've heard that, like, black people deal with that a lot more bumps you mean um, right yeah razor bumps and stuff so i actually went online and looked at you know kind of how to shave different forums and i came across one on on reddit actually hmm. um it was called i don't remember the name of it um i'll look it up and send it to you later or something but that sounds great um but you did <laughs> you did touch on something and i actually had the same experience and i think it applies to a broader spectrum of Balding is like a tough thing to deal with when you're a young guy. Um, mm-hmm. so, so I started getting a widow's peak in college and I look back at pictures of me in high school, even my freshman year, you know, I've got this thick head of hair looking like a young guy. And then sophomore year, it's like someone, someone grabbed the sides of my hair and just started pulling them a couple inches back and pulling them a couple <laughs> inches back. So phase yeah. one for me was ignore. And yeah. then when I, when I got out of college, I would start cutting it shorter um, cause it just looked like a mess when it was long, mm-hmm. but like you said, the denial stage, um, if you look at, I can look back at a picture of me and I'll think that I've got this long head of hair, but if you look at the picture, either from the back or from the top down, it's this big open patch where there is clearly not as much hair. And then it was kind of like a bargaining phase where it was like, all right, like I get it. I'm balding, but I'm going to spend like 50, $60 on a haircut to try and manage it. And then yeah. find I and I actually got some really good advice um, from a fellow ball guy, and I just wasn't ready for it at the time. But he was like, "Dude, just trim it off. Like, accept the fact you're bald." And I was like, yeah. "And at the time, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm 23 years old. I'm not gonna lean into being bald.'" Mm. And then a couple years later, it was like, uh, "Yeah, I actually look way better with a close crop." So, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's how it is with a lot of stuff where we just don't want to accept that this is where we're at in life and it gets a lot better once we lean into it and kind of make what we view as a deficiency into a strength. And I don't know if you've experienced that at all, obviously with the balding we've leaned into it. Cause I remember when I met you, you were also, you also had the hair thing going for a little while. Oh yeah. I, I mean, back in the day I had an Afro, I had cornrows, I had it all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I was, (laughs) um, Oh, and I found that Reddit, uh, the forum it's called wicked edge wicked underscore edge and i actually i went on that and cru- cruised around for a while and they were saying use the they call the double edge razor which is basically you put the razor blade and you screw it into like that really old school old timey razors you would see oh yeah the uh, like steel ones. Old movie. yeah and because you know they use those gillette ones that have like you know five razors like sh- close shave and it's just like tearing up your skin, just terrible. Yeah. Right. So 
I invested in one of these old school steel razors, like an actual like shaving brush, like you see in the old movies where they like mix it up in the bowl and then lather your face with it. Oh, yeah, with the hot towel. It's a little, yeah. uh, it's like Wolverine fur, fur brushes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. And they say, and I, and I researched like what the best brushes were. It was like, oh, you got to get the badger hair. And badger, then you have the to, badger hair. Yeah. And then you have to get, and I looked up different soaps that they were using because they don't shave with shaving cream. They use like shaving soap. Um, and you, you know, you add water and you mix it up with the brush and lather it up. And then I looked at some YouTube videos, how to shave with it. And I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do my first one. Like, what do I have to lose? And it was the most, first of all, it's a fun experience, you know, like mixing it up and lathering and shaving yourself. Dude, mm-hmm. it was so enjoyable and such a fun process. And and I literally had no, like my skin was much, like my skin improved. It was healthy, no bumps, no discomfort, nothing. And that changed my life. And I think- And it's I, so much cheaper, so much cheaper. Like a, ra- a razor blade is it's like a couple cents. You buy like, you can buy a hundred of them for like $5. And I think this is like, so, um, I don't know what the word is. This is so perfect for like what I know about you because we've known each other over a decade now. And it's like, take a thing that may seem like it's not the best and then get really into it and make it into a strength. And I feel like that's been a pattern for you. And I don't know if that's something that you've had to dig out of yourself as you move through because you had a long swimming career. Um, You had a lot of highs and then you you had a couple peaks and valleys. So couple. I had a lot of lows. <laughs> That's not sugarcoated. I had a lot of lows. Right. So let's let's get started with that. So in 08, you made the Bahamian Olympic team, correct? Yeah, that was a high. <laughs> and what was that experience like being over there? Um, well, the experience leading up to it was kind of like it wasn't even the experience of going to the Olympics for me. It was the experience of making the Olympics, I think, for me. Right. Um, so take me through it because I'm pretty obviously I'm pretty in tune with the with the US Olympic team process for swimming, but I don't know what it takes to make the Bahamian team. So in two thousand eight, the when I when I first qualified for my first Olympics, um the rules were you had the A cut and the B cut. Mm-hmm. The A cut, if somebody from your country made the A cut in an event, you can take Either one A cut, you can take two A cuts from that event. And that's why the U.S. always has, you know, two people in the 50, two people in the 100, because everybody always makes the A cut. Because it's kind of Um, understood that it will be an A cut, right? Okay. Yeah. So, however, if nobody makes an A cut, then you can send one B cut in that event. Mm -hmm. That was was the rule, which was a slightly slower time. Um, And I believe back then the B cut was 2319 or 17 it was around no it was 2323 it was 2323 that's what it was uh so it was around that time and my best time in 2008 was a 2378 <laughs> you had a pretty so, you had a pretty big gap to make up and at this time yes. you were in college at this point right Yes, it was my sophomore year of college. The summer had, of my, yeah. And you had had a pretty good year. You were coming off a pretty good year at Kentucky, right? 
Not really. Not really, actually. Okay. I, it was kind of it was kind of average. It was better than my freshman year, but I was still kind of not really at the top of the. You know, I wasn't qualifying for NCAA's or anything. I was making the SEC squad, um, and they didn't have like A, B, and C finals or anything back then. Um, so I didn't. I wasn't making any finals or any B finals even. But you know, I was I was going best time, so it was I was improving at that point. But I hadn't really found my my swing yet. Um, so that summer, so I was going into the summer with a twenty two a twenty three seven as my best time, and um, I believe short course I had just gone like twenty point four or something like that. Mm-hmm. Twenty, you know, so it, or actually it's probably even higher than that. I probably went like twenty point like 20 high or something like it, it, it wasn't that great. Like I had just broken 21 for the first time. Right. That, <laughs> so I wasn't like super stellar or anything. So I knew in order for me to make the Olympics, it was, it was basically a long shot to an impossible feat. But I, I just told myself and I told my coach, I said, listen, like, uh, I don't know if I want to wait another four years to try this again. And who knows what's going to happen, but I'm pretty far off. So if I'm not expected to make it, so if I don't make it, I have, I didn't lose anything, mm-hmm. but a 1% chance that I do make it, I can gain everything, you know? So I said, look, I'm, I'm going to train like I've never trained before. And I will, I will train to the brink of death every day. And if I die, I die. That's literally what I told my coach. I said, <laughs> I said, I would rather know that I died training to try and go to the Olympics than know that I didn't even give myself a chance. Mm-hmm. So at least if I don't make it, I can tell myself I did everything possible every single day and I still didn't make it. I can live with myself. But did if you- I can point to one day and say, you know, that Wednesday three months ago when you skipped practice because you were too busy partying the night before, I'm going to, I'm not going to live with myself. And that's for so, as much as getting your body ready. That's also a mental thing where oh yeah, you're standing on the block. You can look back on your time and say, like you said, that Wednesday I chose to go home and go to bed. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, so it was a big uptick in your training. Um, what did you hold in your mind throughout this time? Did you have a specific big goal? Did you have a mantra? It sounds like you were saying, I'm willing to die in the pool for this. Um, but what was the, besides making the Olympic team, did you have a time goal in your head or was it just do what I can to make no. the Olympics? It was, the only goal I had was win the day. It Got was it. Come to, pra- pra- come to practice that day and kill anything in sight. Right. And so that's that feels more... I love that shift because it's very process oriented, right? It's not, I'm training with this big goal in mind, although you were with the Olympics, but it's Mm -hmm. also, you were breaking it down day by day Mm -hmm. and saying, win each practice one day at a time, one practice at a time. Yeah. Because I put, I put 120% into every single practice, every single weight, every single uh, stretch session, every single meal I ate, everything was just as elite level thinking as I can. It was just, and again, like I said, I was trying to make the Olympics, but I wasn't thinking like, Oh, I need to go this time. I was just thinking I need to, I need to freaking dominate. <laughs> yeah. 
you need to be the the most beast version of yourself. Exactly. I, I remember even in one practice, I was just, I was just annihilating whatever we were doing. And, um, one of the, one of the older girls, it was, we had these twins on our team, Jenny Bradford and Heather Bradford, and they were just sprint beasts at the time. So they were great to train with. They, they would whoop me every day when I was, <laughs> when I was a freshman. So I remember they were training, we were doing this set. Um, and one of, one of them just turned to me and they go, gee, Elvis, you're like, what's up with you? You're, you're like different. <laughs> you know, she, she like acknowledged it. Like, you're like on a new level now. What, like, what's, what's going on? Like, what happened to you? Like it was, but it was in an, in an encouraging way. Like I, I've noticed this mental shift and it's now manifesting itself physically in practice. Mm-hmm. And I want you to know that I acknowledged it, you know? Yeah. And, and she did it in kind of that fun way of they were really fun, bubbly girls. Like they would, they would call you out if you were slacking in practice type people, you know? Sure. So, but, but in a fun way, right? Yeah. You know, like, like pick it up, butthead, like quit slacking, you know, s- stuff like that. So, um, so to get kind of that nod from a senior, uh, was, was, um, it was a good feeling. Um, and also the, it was good to know that I knew I had a mental shift, but it was now sh- other people were noticing. Mm-hmm. And when you're in that so bubble of college, and when you're in that bubble of college, having a couple seniors sign off on what you're doing is like the biggest check mark you can get. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Especially since they were training for, you know, U.S. Olympic trials and the Olympics, and you know they had good shots of making it. You know, mm-hmm. at that time, Jenny Bradford was, um, she was the second fastest sprinter in America because right after Carolyn Joyce, they would go. They would go back and forth, head to head at every NCAA's one, two, one, two, you know, every single time. So mm-hmm. they were no joke. <laughs> okay. So you, you put in, you come out of NCs or sorry, you come out of SECs, your season's over, you start hitting the training super hard. And when were the Bahamian trials? And once you got there, did you feel a shift in your confidence once you got there? Or did you feel like the same old you? And you just happen so, to move faster. Like, take me. Through that's that. a good question. So that summer, I was training hard. I went to. I literally went to every qualifying meet in almost in the almost every qualifying meet in the U.S. And at that time, that's when they first started the the U.S. Pro Series. Um, I don't know if they used to call it the Pro Series then. I think they call it the Grand Prix. Sure, like the the, the meets like, that you travel around the country to go to once a month. Yeah. So I went to ultra swim i went to santa clara i went to uh i went to so many men i couldn't even but if there was a meet available and i had the funding to fly to it i went i put myself in debt pretty much i flew to every meet and i told myself i need to race every chance i get try every chance and i went to all these meets and it was like 23 7 23 7 23 7 23 7 i was just like god like I can't shake this thing. And I would just go back to come back to Kentucky, train even harder, go back out to a meet 23, seven, come back, train even harder, go back out 23, seven. And then finally it came time. So the way Bahamas does it is they make their Olympic qualifying meet the last, like the last chance meet in the world. Like it literally, like the last day of the meet is the last day of the deadline for FINA. Oh man. Um, 
Yeah, so they give us as much time as possible to kind of qualify. And because um, because we're such a small country, we can qualify at any FINA-registered meet. So if I hit the qualifying time at the Ultra Swim in Charlotte, it would count towards me going to the Olympics for the Bahamas. It's not like the U.S. where you have to qualify at your trials. I can qualify anywhere as long as it's within the period. That's such an interesting shift in dynamic because oh yeah, I feel it gives like it you gives, so much more chances. Yeah, and it gives you room to try. Okay, I didn't get it. Try again. Okay, how do we fix yep. it? Yeah, and you, and it's good too because if you have a good World Championships the year before, that time counts. You know, because World Championships is usually within that time period. Okay, so you're coming out of Ultra Swim, you're coming out of all these meets, and you keep banging your head against the wall. Did you change anything else before you got to this Bahamian last chance meet? Uh, did you give yourself more rest or was it just, I got there and then you can take it from there? I think I unintentionally gave myself more rest. I, before na- before our nationals, I flew, I wanted to fly home and be with family to just kind of mentally reset because I had been, you know, annihilating my body and my mind for so long and just going the same time I said you know let me I've been trained I've been in quarantine training for all this time I need to I need to see my family so I flew to Freeport where I'm from um and I spent I think it was maybe a week leading up to nationals no more than two weeks um and I I was just swimming at a local YMCA just going you know doing some taper sets that I had for my coaches and I I was just like, you know what, this this isn't worth it. Like like this is this is terrible. Like I don't I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And I just I just left the pool and went home and I I had kind of quit in my head to be honest. I was like, I'm just not I'm just not going. Like it it it's over. And the director of the YMCA in the Bahamas, her name was Karen Johnson. Mm-hmm. big fan of big fan and big supporter of mine love her to death i'll do anything for her she knows that uh she she called me up and says hey like i want to get the news reporters out here to come and do a story on you you know like you're the you're our best swimmer and you're going into your trials and you're gonna make the olympics like i want them to get the exclusive before it happens you know and i'm like god like what what an embarrassing story like <laughs> <laughs> it's like i'm not coming she's like please like just come like i I got the reporter come in today so i was like geez i can't even back out of this thing now so i'm thinking i'm just gonna go to the ymca like answer his questions and then just leave you know mm-hmm. uh, so i show up to the y knowing knowing i had already quit swimming <laughs> um and you know he's there and he does a story on you know, asking me like how I've been training and what do I have to go and this and that. And, and Miss Johnson was like, you know, get, get up on the blocks and, and do a quick 50 for him. Show him what you got. And I'm like, really? Like, like I quit two days ago. Why, <laughs> why yeah. you got me doing this? Right. And this guy didn't even have a camera or anything. He literally just had like a tape recorder and like a pen and pencil. Like it wasn't even, it wasn't even like a real like TV interview or anything. So I'm like, what am I, I'm just swimming for some guy. <laughs> in this and if you've seen the ymca pool at freeport like you would laugh it was like uh like the blocks were like homemade they were like like on top they basically put like a hard piece of plexi plastic 
and then like skateboard grip tape so you don't slip like it was and it was like cracker thin so <laughs> you'd step on it and it would full, bend over to the sides it would like bow it, it was just just terrible i'm getting a uh, rocky in the back room of the butcher shop vibes from this pool that you're just that, to me that's exactly what it, it's exactly like that like the right. tile is chipping like the deck is you're not sure what color it was but it may have been a faint blue maybe 50 years ago kind of thing there's grass growing through the the concrete it, yeah it's the the fence behind it is rusted yeah everything like that so I hop on this dilapidated block <laughs> and just think in a, you know, some drag suit or whatever. And I'm like, whatever, I'll just, I'll just swim a moderately fast 50 for this guy. And she's like, I'm going to get my watch. And I'm like, God, like, Karen, come on, you're killing me here. So <laughs> she pulls out her stopwatch. I'm like, all right, I'll do moderate heart. Like I'll go s slightly above moderate. So Take you, you know, um, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So she, I don't know, the, the audio sounded weird for a second, but um, she goes, you know, take your marks and I dive off the blocks and I don't know, when I hit the water, it was just, you know, that feeling when you're about to have a good swim, you hit the water and you kind of glide like an extra, like six inches or 12 inches. And you're like, Ooh, what, it, what was that? It almost you feels know? like you're. It, like the water is thinner almost yeah yeah, yeah. Like that and i had one of those feelings when i dove in so i said okay let me let me give it a little dolphin kick see what's going on and <laughs> it's like oh that's that felt strong <laughs> that's good, <laughs> you know and then let me let me see what's going to happen on this breakout i was like oh that was a that was kind of a strong perfect breakout and you know these thoughts just keep like building in my head as the swim is going on and it's like oh wow i'm getting to this wall kind of kind of quick and you know i flip and i push off again and i'm like wow this this feels kind of nice let me just let me just moderately finish and see what's gonna happen you know um touch the wall and she's like 2310 very nice and i was like wait whoa, 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 whoa. slow down <laughs> slow down fast fingers she like shows me the watch and she's like 23-1, you just, you just hit the qualifying time, like, right in our pool, like, amazing. And I was like, wait, what? That's unreal. I'm like, I'm like, no, she's, she's got fast fingers. Like, no, it's because it was a, tw it was a 25 meter pool too. So okay. I'm like, okay, it's probably from the turn, like, and the whole time I'm like, did I really just do that? Just no warm up, drag suit, no shave, just like. There's, and you start doing that weird like taper math in your head. You're like, well, if I had warmed up and then if I had actually had a real block and I actually, and I'm better long course, but if I, you know, and you're like, I taper can maybe math. do this. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we all, we've all done it. We've all done it. Yeah. Taper extrapolation. So, so I just went yeah. this on four 100s IM. If I add these up in this way, yeah. block, I can go this in a 400 IM. Oh yeah. I've been there. Exactly. Oh yeah. So that kind of starts happening in like, um, so the guy, you know, they took a picture and we did the interview and then the paper releases, like it was, it was like a fish named whatever. I, I can't remember the title of it, but a fish named Alvin. So yeah. Something like that. But, um, it went, that kind of inspired me. I was like, I can, I can maybe do this, you know? So I said, what do I have to lose? And I, I go to nationals 
and I show up and I and I try to I try to recreate exactly what happened. I hop on the block. I did a time trial. I said, you know what? As soon as I get there, I'm just going to time trial, be the first race ever, and get mm-hmm. it out of the way. Mm-hmm. So literally hopped off the plane, went straight to the pool, suited up, and did a time trial before the meet even started. And the whole crowd's there watching time trial, and it's a 50-meter pool now. I do no warm-up because I was like, hey, I went without warm-up at home. I'm going to do no warm-up now. You know, the whole superstitious stuff starts coming in. and. I swim and I go, I go 23, three mm-hmm. and the time to hit is like 23, two, seven. Right. That's super close. Or, or 23, two, three, something like that. And I was like, Oh boy. And the whole, and the crowd was like this audible gasp of like, Oh, was that it? Was that it? And, <sighs> you know? And everyone was like, and the announcer was like, Oh, just on the cusp. He'll definitely get that tomorrow with another night of sleep. Like, can't wait to see it happen. And it, it's like, Oh God, it's getting real. <laughs> so I warm down and go home that night and I could barely sleep. I, it like, I would think about the race and my heart would start like pounding and like, it was, it was a, it was a tough, exciting, anxious night. I, I couldn't sleep. So I come back the next morning and the Bahamian coach at the YMCA at the time, she pulls me aside. She goes, why don't why don't you forget this whole not warming up crap? Like just <laughs> do what you've been doing for years. Like go do an actual warm up, do an actual stretch, get your mind right. We'll still time trial it first thing before the meet starts and let's do this, you know? So I was like, all right, that makes sense. So I do a warm up, do a proper warm up, you know, get ready and they say, "Okay, he's back again. He's going to time trial." And now it's like everybody's watching. <laughs> So I hop on the blocks, do my time trial. Twenty-two eighty-eight. No, dude, that's oh my gosh. Twenty-two eighty-eight. That's the unreal. crowd goes. The crowd goes wild. <laughs> do you remember what was going through your mind at the time? It was that diving in, and it was like this feels good. And each stroke was just boom, boom, just per- perfection the whole time, just power and. Once I, and I count my strokes, so I knew when I was like 19 strokes and I was in the flags, I was like, I I got it. And then I touched the wall and saw 22.8. I actually touched the wall and looked at the crowd to see their reaction. I looked at my buddies on deck, and everyone was like, had this shocked look and jumping up and down, and I was like, oh! And then I turned around and I looked at the clock, and I was like, whoa! Like, <laughs> did not expect that. Dude, that's unreal that it happened for you like that, where you dropped a half second in between your tries at the same meet. Like that doesn't happen. Yeah. No, and, and and again, just just the month before that, my time was twenty two seven. Do you draw? So moving on, uh, as we move forward through your career, do did you draw from that experience? Did you learn from that preparation or? how you approach those couple months later in your career to try and kind of reshape how you raced after that? Absolutely. I think it more reshaped how I trained after that and my mental process after that. How so? Because, um, because I spent so much time preparing for the Olympics that when I got to the Olympics, I hadn't prepared for what to do when I was there at all. Mm. So <laughs> it was like, yeah, I made it. Wait, 
now what? <laughs> you know? So basically going to the Olympics was almost like just a cherry on top. It wasn't even the cake anymore. It was like, I, well, I've already eaten all my cake. Not like I've made it here. Um, I, you know, I've seen that. I've seen that before where it's like, it takes so much to get to these big meets or in other things in life, getting to the place. And it seems like it's even harder to stay there because no one actually has a plan because they can't see past getting there. Yes. And like I said, I was, when I was training, I wasn't even training to make the Olympics. I was just training to be a beast. You know, if I made the Olympics, that was a side effect. Mm -hmm. Um, so I get there and it's basically just like a, I'm just there for the experience, you know, cause it was a miracle for me to even be there in the first place. So thinking about winning a medal or making a final was like, let's not even like, <laughs> like, all right, slow down, buddy. <laughs> you know? So I, I didn't even think that far ahead, but right. um, I remember I was, I was in the Bahamas. Like we all stayed in like country dorms or apartments or whatever you want to call them in the village. So the Bahamas has a building, you know, Russia has their building and, you know, Cuba has their building, whatever. So I remember I was in like the lobby where we all kind of hung out, played dominoes, watch TV, whatever. And one of our top athletes at the time, um, his name was, his name was Chris Brown, ironically. Uh, he was our 400 meter medalist and kind of like a national hero at that point And someone I really looked up to, mm -hmm. um, He's kind of the elder statesman on the team, right? Yeah. And I, I, I was sitting with him, and he, he had kind of been a mentor to me at, the, at that meet, so I really appreciated that. And he, he said, like, so what are your goals for this meet? And I was like, goals? Like, my goal was to make it here. Like, Yeah, you're, just, you're you there. Know, <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I mean, it would be cool if I go at best time or whatever. And he goes, and he, and he straight up looked at me and goes, I don't get it with you swimmers. I said, what do you mean? He goes, anytime I ask a swimmer, like what their goal is for the Olympics, y'all always come with this crap about you just want to go a best time or whatever. Like, why don't y'all aim it for medals? And that like resonated with me. And I was like, what? He goes, like, if you come here just trying to go a best time, then you're just going to swim good. Why don't you aim for a met? Why don't you aim for a gold and maybe get a silver? Mm -hmm. You know? And it was like, and he put it in a way that was so like, and I was like, well, you know, like, and I started making the excuses of, well, you know, like it was already impossible for me to make it here. And he goes, okay. And you did it right. I said, well, yeah. And he goes, so why is it impossible for you to make a medal? And, and that kind of, that shifted my mindset again. Right. He why put is it, it impossible? For, yeah. He put it in like a, like a duh kind of way. Like, obviously this yeah. is what we do. Right. Yeah. And he goes, you think I come here for best times? You think I come here to make friends? It's like, it's like, I come here to, to win. Like, otherwise this is a stay home, <laughs> you know? And I was that, like, and it that's, was just, yeah, that's an interesting difference in perspective though, because, um, the Bahamian, the track team, it's, it's the track team is so dominant. And then yeah. you guys in the swim team, it seems like he's almost like big brother to you in that way too. Like it's a, yeah. it's a certain dynamic between the teams. Exactly. So, you know, him saying that it was like, well, in order to get to that level, that's kind of, that's the thinking we need, you know, because in track, it's almost expected they come home with a medal, mm -hmm. but obviously 
the first medal in track wasn't until like 2004. So they were relatively young or 2000, I think. So it was still, it wasn't like they were, had a long history of winning medals. It was just, they had a, a good breakthrough and then that set them up. So swimming, swimming was, we were on the cusp, you know, of like, because it was me, a gentleman named Jeremy Knowles. And that was the Olympics was his retirement meet. Um, so he was like the male before me. Um, and then on the women's side, we had Alana Dillette, who was kind of leading the charge at that time. Mm-hmm. And then on my level was Ariana Vanderpool Wallace. So that was our first Olympics. And we were, you know, we were the babies, basically, you know? Yeah. So so Chris Brown, you know, kind of telling me that, like, like you and Ariana, like, he's like, you guys are the future, man. You got to you got to start thinking medals now. Like, this is no joke, you know, because I mean, attract the Olympics is just, he's like, this is just another meet. You know, he's like, I got, I'm after my, after I run here, I'm going to a meet in Belgium. (laughs) You know, he's like, this is just a meet along this, a stop along the way, buddy. That's, you know, and I was like, man, that was like, wow. And he he was serious. He went to another meet and won like a gold medal over there. So it's like, so it it just really changed my thinking. So the Olympics is almost like a stop on a circuit for him. It's a big stop. Yes. The biggest stop, yeah. but it's still, oh, and also it's I've got a, still a stop. Yeah. He's not doing the swimmer thing where it's like big meet happens. Okay. Let's go chill and party for a month and forget about swimming for a month. Like he is no. dialed in doing other meets. Grind doesn't stop. Yeah. Exactly. That's such a, exactly. that's such an interesting change in, uh, in the, in the approach of sport too. Exactly. That really like opened my eyes. I was like, wow. Like, the Olympics is just another meet. It's like it's it's everybody's meet is at the same time. That's what makes it such a big meet. But if you really look, I'm only there to swim in my meet, you know. So I was like, it, it really rattled my brain, and I and I thought about it for like weeks, like that conversation. Like obviously, I still think about it today. It, it was a really kind of a mind changing, mindset changing conversation, and I think I can point to that conversation that really set up my success for my true breakout meet was, which was in 2009 when you and I met in Rome, mm-hmm. the world championships. And that's so where now, you got a second swim there, right? Almost. You were close. I was close. But and so it's man. So this guy who's a medalist at the Olympics sees the Olympics as just another meet. And I wonder if that's a pattern because, um, like I was lucky enough to train with uh, Phelps for two years, and mm-hmm. before the 2015 nationals uh, for swimming, and it was his big comeback after having a suspension, and there was a lot of pressure on him to get ready for uh, 16 trials in Rio. We were all eating lunch at Subway, which was perfect <laughs> because he was a Subway athlete at the time. Yeah. Um, but one of the guys in our training group, we were in this little postgrad training group. He was super nervous, and he was actually in a similar situation to you, where he was uh, representing a country that he needed cuts and he did, needed times to go to the Olympics. And he's like, "Michael, like, what do I do? I'm so nervous right now. How do I approach this meet?" And he was like, "I'm not saying shaking, but like, he was really, really nervous about this meet. And he had just put in a really good training year. He had just had a really good spring meet." And Michael, the greatest athlete in the history of our sport, says, eh, I don't know, it's just another meet. Like, this is <laughs> <laughs> like you go to this meet. If you do bad, you do good. It's just another swim meet. And then there's another swim meet. 
and I'm sure I'm misquoting him, but that was the general, the vibe of it was, it's just another swim meet. And I heard him say that. I was like, wait, what are you talking about? Like nationals? And this is, you can, you can definitely vibe with this because I know this is how you were feeling about Beijing when you were there. It was like the world might as well end after this meets over because this is the only thing on earth that exists right Mm -hmm. and that on one hand it allows you to go all in and get there which you did but on the other hand it puts a ton of pressure on your performance in that meet and for some people that could be detrimental or pull you back from what you really could do because you're like this isn't the last chance i'll ever get right so i wonder if that abundance mentality of the top guys like Chris Brown or like Michael Phelps in swimming allows them to just cut loose and do what they would do any other swim meet. They just happen to be more prepared for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so did you take that wisdom? You said you did well in Rome. Um, Did you feel like that also improved you throughout your training through your college career? Oh, Um, of course. I came back from, I came back from Beijing and um, we were there for a long time. So it was pretty much, I came back home and then I had like maybe four, maybe four days to a week with my family. And then it was like off to college for orientation again. So it was, it was a pretty quick turnaround. And I remember my coach was like, do you need like a little more time to like, relax you know you just you just you just came off your last meet you know like you know I was like nah we're going we're going into spring training and I told him I was like hey in training this is kind of what I need like I know this doesn't work for me anymore I came back a little more confident I was like look I know this doesn't work for me in training so I I don't want to do that anymore or we can find an alternative and it was basically running I was I was not the best runner and we used to do these like four to six mile runs um, almost every day. And I would just end up like, it would, it would just be a waste of my time. I would end up with tendonitis in my knee and I would just be like a limp for like half the season. I'm like, it's, it's a waste of my time. I just need to jump back in this water and start sprinting and, and destroying the gym. And that's, what's going to put me on the next level coach. Right. And, and we're finding out more now that a lot of aerobic, for a lot of sprinters and some need it, but a lot of that just plain aerobic really isn't necessary for someone like yourself. That's all about the raw explosiveness of sprinting. Exactly. And we, in uh, Kentucky, we used to do like a whole six to eight week, like building up your aerobic base. God, I hate that term, but it was, that was the culture there at that time. And it's a yes. Said, term. This, I'll agree with you. It's yeah, a yes I, was like, <laughs> I was like, look, I just, all I do is struggle through this eight weeks and then, after that, we switch to sprint group, and then I have to restart my training. And it was – I just waste eight weeks. I was like, just put me in it now. I'm just, I'm coming off of a meet. I'm still strong. I'm still spicy. Like, let me – just let me dominate, coach. Like, geez. Like, and, and, and that like, aerobic, right. that aerobic, it's like taking sandpaper to, like, your explosive edge, right? Exactly. It's just a waste of my time. And so. it, just, it just wears it down in the quick. Yeah. I found – even for you know it's funny you say that like even for someone like myself um that was training for the 200 im it felt like if i was going through long stretches where i was doing i guess what would be called upper mid d you know a lot of high vo2 max training a lot of 400 im training a lot of long course on short intervals 
it felt like I had no explosiveness whatsoever. So I imagine for someone like yourself, whose job was the 50 and the 100, like yeah, you're coming out of this boot camp. Sentence. You're coming out of this early boot camp. Like I can't even, I can't even explode for a 25, much less sustain for a hundred of, of pure sprint. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was just a waste of my time. And, and thankfully the coaches had, you know, I had just come off the Olympics. So it was kind of like, I had a little, a little more leverage and, you know, I had that ace card in my pocket, like, Hey, like I know it's going to work. So, and you knew and, yourself a little bit better as a result of the experience. Exactly. And I had just come off a really good training summer. So I, now I was at a level where I could train at a high level and I knew what I needed. So they kind of accommodated me to some extent, you know, and that was, I never lost the hundred butterfly that whole season. Really? Never. Straight up through straight up through my senior year. Any meet we went to. You were undefeated in the hundred fly. Undefeated. Undefeated. And, and you attribute that to the shift in your training or was and the there... shift in my mindset. Yeah. So what was the shift in your mindset? Was it something that built on itself each time? Like I won the last one, I can get this one too? Or was there no, a broad overall a, mindset? It was more of coming from that summer before of you know, I've trained, I've trained to the brink of death every day and I survived it. Like I can do anything. So it wasn't like I went into it thinking I'll never lose the hundred fly. It was just, I went into it thinking like, this is just another hundred fly. I'm going to win. I never even back to, the it wasn't until like the, of what Chris yeah, Brown told you. Exactly. It was, it was just, it wasn't even a question of was I, if I was going to win. It was just like another hundred fly along the way of like, let's get this one out of the way so I can get to SECs. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that's what I'm focused. I'm focusing on meddling at SECs. Like this is like, let's just knock this little mosquito out of the way so I can get to the final boss. Your, and, your perspective had zoomed higher up than you were before. Exactly. It was almost like, like dual meets were like the dregs and you're like, how dare you contest me? Uh, yeah uh, lesser lesser life form <laughs> yeah it was that that's kind of how it was and it was um i mean people today like if i man if i told you some stories you'd be like wow you are the cockiest like a-hole i've ever heard but in order in order to be at that level you have to and I, and I know we've talked about this before and i've talked about this with brett hawk a lot too in order to get to that level of domination you need that little sprinkle of delusion in your life, you know, of like literally nothing can kill me. So like, I'm just going to dominate or I'm the greatest, even though you have no Olympic medals <laughs> and you're literally not the greatest, but you have to walk on that deck thinking that you have 20 Olympic gold medals in your back pocket and no one can tell you otherwise because you're a lunatic. <laughs> and that's the only way you're going to, even get close to being a, that level. It seems like that especially is good in sprinting because yes. like you can be a lunatic and delusional and be a miler, right? But if you don't put mm -hmm. in that the insane aerobic training it takes to be one of the top milers, you're going to fall flat on your face. It seems mm -hmm. like with sprint training, you know, you can bring that delusion and sprint training is a little different where it's more about the quality of your training instead of the quantity. And you can roll up on the day. And if you've done the work, that delusion will give you that edge over the person next to you. Correct. 
Correct. No, so, I mean, if you told me, we don't have to get into it, but I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me whatever story you have about how cocky you were <laughs> in, your mind, in your mind, but I imagine it would actually be par for the course with all of the best sprinters in the world. And it's I, almost necessary. Like some that. people don't talk about it, but I imagine most of the best swimmers in the world, there is a cocky voice in their head saying like, this person next to me, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> it's all, it's almost like, and swimming is such a, like a golf clap, you know, quote unquote, tasteful, classy sport per se that like, it's almost taboo to talk about. You know, you, I remember, country, I remember when Cesar Cielo, yeah, I remember when Cesar Cielo, like kind of first came out and, you know, he would celebrate after winning and people were like, oh, like, how dare he? I was like, how dare he like be happy that he won a race? Like, what do you, how is that offensive? <laughs> you, you know? Yeah. And I remember those days. So it was like, you, you couldn't even, um, you it's couldn't per- even mention like thinking you could beat your, your opponent. Like that was like, it's wow. perfect. You bring up Caesar because then on the other side, we also, because the sport is pretty country club with the, with the smack talking as well. Mm-hmm. It was like such big news um, after their after that fifty fly at twenty eleven Worlds when Caesar was supposed to be suspended and then he came back and he won that fifty fly. Yeah. Um, the South African swimmer, I think it's Dunford. There was that picture of him with the thumbs down, which oh, in, in, any, in any other sport, it's like, oh wow, the wide receiver did a thumbs down at the cornerback. Right, yeah, like but in swimming, it's like it's like it's like <gasps> thumbs down. What? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, ban him for li- like they wanted to ban him longer than Caesar was banned for like a yeah. Charge. And it was <laughs> such- for thumbs down. And and I remember being like, whoa, that's a big deal. But now looking back, it's like the the dude did a thumbs down. We don't need <laughs> you. Yeah, you should have done a. Anyone else would have done a middle finger. Like, <laughs> and I wonder if it's part of it. And I wonder why, because like on the other side, you've got tennis, which is, I mean, the craziest stuff happens at tennis matches because those people are alone for three hours and they're in this mental battle with each other. I wonder if it's the nature of your face being in the water for swimming and it's all the clock that like, yeah, you can smack talk, but at the end of the day, the best swimmers let let it shake off of them and they just let the clock talk. I don't know if you have a different take on that. I think it's more of a class socioeconomic thing because you don't see it in golf. You don't see it in, uh, what, like equestrian. What are some, like, what are some other rich people's sports? You know, like you don't see that in downhill skiing because you know, <laughs> we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be rich and classy and swimming was swimming back in the day was used as a classist way to, you know, keep minorities out and you know keep it very country like you said country club Mm -hmm. um so i think that's kind of where that i honestly think that's where it came from and football and basketball you don't see that you see more of that you know grimy uh uh manly dare i say urban you know influence of you know i'm gonna beat my chest and i'm gonna be the the baddest guy out here Mm -hmm. you know and when you have a sport that was literally founded on being exclusionary to minorities and that type of behavior, that's, that's what you're going to get. But then over time, as swimming becomes more available to more people and more international, eventually you're going to have a guy who comes out and slams his chest and 
not even care. I mean, Gary Hall did it even back in his day, Gary Hall Jr. And, you know, and he of course was, he was seen. And people loved him, but he was also polarizing. Like, what? He's wearing, exactly. a, he's wearing a robe in shadow boxing? What? Yeah. He, and, you know. And he's outspoken? Yeah. And I wonder, so you said, like you said, the country club backgrounds, um, the exclusionary nature of it, even the structure of how swimming is set up, um, like in the way of FINA, you know, we took it for granted growing up what FINA was and the structure of it, but there really wasn't a lot of room for capitalism, the way that the NFL allows for it or the way that baseball allows for it. Oh, for sure. And I, sure. and, I, and I wonder if that's why they were so scared of what the ISL would be, because the ISL is finally the first lane where it's like swimming as pure entertainment product. I know swimming is super watched at the Olympics for NBC, and that makes a ton of money, and the Olympic trials do well, but swimming as popcorn entertainment at the ISL, and I feel like it's, I, I'm really interested to see where that takes the sport culturally as well. And I'm a big fan of the ISL. I've been calling for that for years, and I've tried to help other people set up something similar. So I'm glad that it's happening. Um, I don't agree with some of the ways they're going about it, but I know they are. It's a working progress, and they're you know they're adapting. So um, I've had a few talks with people at the ISL actually, and um, still here willing to help, obviously. I think it scared FINA because FINA had a monopoly on the sport for so long. I think they, and I mean, they, they know that it could be done so much better. They just didn't have the competition to improve it at all. So yeah, uh, in the end, it would be good for FINA as well, theoretically. Exactly. So that's just the backwards old time, old people thinking of like, oh, this is new and it scares me. I'm just going to try and squash it instead of benefit from it. Mm-hmm. But, um, and they tried to ban, they tried to ban anyone swimming FINA from swimming in the ISL. Almost like, like how the Olympics is like professional boxers can't box in the Olympics. They right. tried to do something like that. And the swimmers stood up and sued and they won, you know, which I thought was great. It's like, you can't, you can't force us to not do our sport. And, you know, so it's, I wonder if in like 2004, if it would have been a similar result from the swimmers though, you know, because part of that is there had to be this collective belief among a very close knit and especially in the United States, the national team from what I understand is a very close knit group of people. And there had to be this collective belief that yes, this ISL is a good idea. We have to back it up. And I wonder if say in like 2004, a couple athletes would have gotten scared because there wasn't as much opportunity for individual athletes in any sport. That's not one of the big four to market themselves, become a brand. They would be like, okay, no, 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 Fina, you're right. You're right. Sorry. Sorry. Like we won't do the ISL. I, that's for sure what would have happened. And I was actually afraid that it would have happened now, but um, I think swimmers have, you know, the sponsorship and swimming has come a long way and you have some swimmers who've, made a decent amount of money so they're saying like uh it it may be getting to the point where it's like like professional boxing is like i make too much money to even think about olympics like why would i why do i care about a gold medal like what does that get me yeah i'd rather do this fight or this meet and make you know x amount of dollars and 
live my life screw your gold medal like right and then but... now professional boxing is like olympic boxing is almost a joke <laughs> i mean it's not a joke because they're you know they're really great boxers but but know, relative no to right relative to other yeah. sports like basketball which has the nba players or swimming which has exactly uh caleb dressel katie decky michael phelps yeah so you know, fina would have fina would have shot themselves in the foot if that happened it was like okay well i'll just pay these swimmers in the isl a million to not go to the olympics and then now what <laughs> now you're screwed now you don't now you don't have michael phelps there you don't have you don't you probably don't have your top 30 guys mm-hmm. then it would be people like me and you racing for a medal <laughs> And that's why it's really awesome that someone finally found a way to put money into the sport in this way. And I think another thing, this is a small thing, but it's something that you and I share. I think, like I said at the top, we do a lot of fitter, faster clinics together. And I feel like even, even that stuff did not exist as a system or something in place to support athletes. Uh, Like I said, back in the day that even that's in place now, you know, a kid who's 22 and say they got fourth in the 53 at NCAs and their top eight at nationals at the 50, right? Mm-hmm. I would say even when I was in college, say and through 2013, fitter faster camps weren't as big then. Um, it was basically work odd jobs, give private swim lessons, maybe coach for a club team, and then train to try and make the Olympics and other USAA national teams or bust. And now you're 22 years old and it's literally like college basketball or football where it's um, ISL teams are calling them and then they can train and make, there's not a ton of money in the ISL right now. And I think a lot of it is merit-based, but I don't have really an inside scoop on that. But then they can go to these fitter, faster clinics on weekends, make enough to put a little money in their pocket, pay rent, pay for their coaching, pay for their training. And all of a sudden, you've got a self-sustaining professional athlete, and it's there. And I think that's a big part of it, too, is these structures that are in place now that a swimmer can see themselves from, say, on average, age 23 to 26, let's say. Or like a really, really good college swimmer could say, I'm going to take a shot at being an ISL swimmer, and then also I'll train for the Olympics. But mostly, I get to be a pro athlete in a pro league on a pro team. Exactly. It's like uh, it's opening the door to, like, like fulfilling a dream, you know, because swimming, swimming was not a professional sport for up until very recently, honestly, because if you really think about it, the only real pros, like in 2008, were like Michael Phelps, uh, Ryan Lochte, um, Pearsall, Pearsall, like, it was literally a handful of them. And then Michael Phelps was way ahead of the rest of them. Um, Lochte got a decent deal coming out of college. And I think I remember Cullen Jones got, you know, a little something here and there, well, but wait, I, I think, I, to, I think I got to clarify here. These little somethings or these big deals, <laughs> it was completely dependent on, did you get a suit deal? And I guess yeah. I left that part out of what it took back then from like the Oh four to the 12 range was all of a sudden yeah. suit companies started becoming more into marketing and, um, having athletes the way that shoe companies had athletes. But even then you had to be the top athlete to get money from the suit company, right? Like Michael Phelps would get a big deal, but say uh, even like a lesser Olympian isn't getting that much money from a suit deal. Right. So Mm -hmm. 
even that's changed where people don't have to count on, oh man, is Speedo going to give me a call and pay me to wear their suits or am I just going to get, you know, free suits from a suit company? Like I was lucky enough, I worked with Arena my last year of full-time swimming going into 16 because I was on the national team. But, you know, someone who, like myself, that was top 20 in the world in my event, I got uh, basically store credit towards suits. And that was awesome. I was like, whoa, free suits? Like, I only got got that in college. But in any other sport, if you're top 20 in the world, you're making bank. Yeah. Right? And so I just, I guess I just love that the shift is going in this direction. And someone like yourself, who has a full-time job outside of swimming now, you're in a slightly different place in your life. And, but there's still room for even you to take a weekend or two every month and say, you know what, like, I'm going to go do a fitter faster clinic. Or if you wanted to stop doing your job and go back to training, you could say, you know what, I'm going to quit my job, go back to training and run fitter faster clinics. Like that's exactly, that's super cool. It doesn't have to be, Hey, small left of the road suit company. That's not speedo. Can you give me an incentive based contract and maybe I'll make some money off of it. It's I can do this myself. And I don't know if you have felt this level of empowerment yourself or if you have any comments on it, but oh, I felt like sure. that's I been mean, really cool. Because I, I pretty much did the pro thing uh, right after graduation, you know? I went, I went straight up from, I graduated 2010 and I went straight up through 2016. So I, I've done the pro thing for a long time. And I actually, I still to this day have um, some suit companies that will message me on Instagram and, want to do deals with me or anything like that it's just not you know worth it's not worth my time anymore to engage in you know that type of work uh anymore or like the amount the amount where my career is now the amount of money it would take for me to you know accept a suit deal to go and dive in fully into professional swimming again you know it's just (laughs) I don't think my performance would even justify that type of money, <laughs> you know? Right. So I, I think that's kind of when you hit, when you hit that point, it's when you're like, uh, maybe I'm getting close to retirement, you know, but um, I still swim for the love of it. I'm still, I still have the top times in my event for the Bahamas. So, you know, I'm still on top of my game. No, don't get me wrong. Uh, let me not say on top of, you know, I'm definitely not in my super prime anymore, but I'm, I'm still the prime of the country. Put it that right. way. And I guess this, this is an important question that I've been wrestling with, and I'd love to know how you feel about it. So as far as identity goes, do you still feel like you're a pro athlete, like today, Elvis Burroughs? Or do you feel like you've shifted a little bit from where you were in the 2010 to 2016 phase? Like, regardless of how much you're putting into your training, do you still see yourself in that way when you look in the mirror wow guess i never really thought about that um i don't think so. i don't think so like because i think that this that's actually going to lead into a much bigger conversation because i think i Wait. think that kind of messed i think that kind of messed me up with a little bit of um that transition and i've seen i've seen this happen to other athletes before we kind of ingrain ourselves we make what we do our identity. So when it's not there to do anymore, we don't know who we are. Right. And so was that something 
that you you struggled with yourself or did you see more, that more with other people? Like, uh, just keep going with this. I want to keep going on the thread. I think I was on the cusp of about to struggle with it, but I, I, I identified it in other people and, and I said, I don't want that to happen to me. So I need, I need to start making moves now to get ready for when I do retire to figure out who I am and what is it that I'm going to do? Because if I attach my identity to Elvis, the pro athlete, Elvis, the swimmer, when I retire, what, then what, when you give up swimming, then what, you know, it's limiting on its face. It's limiting on its face, right? Because once it's gone, what do you have? So what, what levers were you pulling? What, um, what what were you putting in place towards the end of your career to say, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to, to move into my next phase a little bit more smoothly than I could have if I didn't identify this. So I, I always knew what I wanted to do. Um, like I studied hospitality and nutrition in college. So I knew I always wanted to be in the hospitality field. I either wanted to have my own restaurant or, you know, maybe run a hotel someday or something like that. So I always knew that was what I, that was my other passion. And so as I, as I was seeing the end of swimming come near, I started to start to gear myself up to enter kind of the job market. And that way I could have like a smooth transition physically and mentally and start, you know, I started networking with people in the industry, started, you know, going to events, started building a resume or trying to, and, um, you know, making sure that I was mentally prepared for that transition because I've seen a lot, a lot of athletes, you know, they hit that final Olympics and then they freak out, <laughs> you know, they, they don't know what to do. They say, you know what? I'll just train another year until I figure it out. Right. I'll train it's, another year until I figure it out. And then next the, thing you know, um, it's the, it's the curse of the person who was on the moon. They come back from the moon. They're like, okay, yeah. what now? Yeah. Yeah, this so, is, and so, and so you were you were doing these things, you were putting these things in place as you're training and getting ready for your last Olympics. Correct. Okay, and then so coming out of it, um, you started working in the industry, and for a while you were working at a place in Miami at a hotel. Correct. Actually, I visited you back in January. <laughs> we, That's right. Yeah. We did a camp together, okay. and we had a yeah. really nice dinner together at your hotel, but that ended recently and i'd love to know how you came out of that because the ho- did the hotel shut down they shut down um cor- like most of miami beach is shut down right now because of coronavirus just killed the travel industry and the tourist industry and then obviously the governor and the mayor shut down hotels and restaurants mm-hmm. so um yeah and after you know, after so many months uh, we we got officially laid off March 23rd, so almost like six months out of work. You know the hotel couldn't couldn't survive, so they just said we close indefinitely, and that happened to a lot of businesses. And so once it shut down, you're out of work. What was your approach to to all of that? Because one of the things I've noticed about our current our current setup since March is people have to take a second and feel really bad about it. And it is really bad, but sometimes people tend to see the opportunity. So I'd love to know how you came out the other end of that and started moving forward towards what you're doing now. So 
my first instinct was, okay, this will probably last, the shutdown will probably last a month, maybe two at max. Like I have some savings, like I'm like, I could actually use a vacation because I was working extremely hard going into that because it was our busy season. Mm-hmm. But so I was, I kind of welcomed the, the vacation. I'm trying to look at it positive. Like, okay. And then, you know, two months pass, three months pass. And it's like, okay, <laughs> now I'm just getting fat on the couch. You can't train. Can't like, it would have been nice if I was just home training, you know, then it was like, okay, I can pretend to be a super professional athlete again, but now I can't do that. The gyms are closed. The pools are closed. And it would have been oh. a structure for you to invest in. Like I can exactly. invest in my old daily routine of being a swimmer instead. Yes. And just like you say, like, uh, if I wanted to go back and do fitter fasters to sustain my life and, you know, train like that, it, it could have been an easy transition for me to just go back to like, okay, I'll just, I'll just do be a pro athlete until the shutdown's over. But you know, everything shut down. So that was barely an option either. Um, yeah. There was a two month window where clinics weren't happening. And I was, I remember exactly. that as well. That was, yeah, but keep going. So, um, it just came to a point where I was like, I don't, I need to start thinking in the future. Like I don't see, I don't see Miami beach coming back from this for at least another year. So I need to start applying everywhere I can and anywhere I can. And I found a, I found a job in Orlando that was, it was a, it would have been a slight promotion for me, actually a really good promotion for me from my current, I guess, my current position before the shutdown. Um, and I had been, you know, interviewing and talking with them for, for at least three months, you know? Um, and finally I got the official nod and, you know, it was almost, it was a, it was a little bit of luck, you know, because with, with all the shutdowns, there's a lot of people who are competing for the same jobs. Yeah. A lot so, of people in the same boat as you. Exactly. So, um, luckily for me, it's, it was just a three and a half hour drive up the road and, you know, it was a, a great company that I'm not a part of and, um, kind of the, the, the roles of responsibilities are pretty much everything playing to my strengths and my strong points and the, my passions. So, you know, I don't dream of work, but if I did, it would be my dream job. <laughs> so can you take us through more, um, what the day-to-day is and how it comports with what you care about and how you see the world. Cause like you said, you don't dream of work, but I think when, you say, when you say the word dream job, I got to at least ask you what, what is it that you're doing day-to-day that you enjoy so much? So um, I have a strength for operations when it comes to hospitality, you know, with um, customer service, training, um, operations. Um, basically if you ever watched a, kitchen rescue or bar rescue or something like that i can i have a good eye for going into a a struggling or underperforming you know venue and you know really turn it around you know with um i have an eye to see what's wrong and how to fix it you're you know, i may not be the, yeah yeah I, I may not be the greatest uh you know reading over some numbers and you know Oh, like this number needs to be over here and this, but you know, that, that, that's not really my super strong point, but you know, I can walk into a business and you know, and I can tell you what's wrong. I can look around and the first 15 minutes, I can give you 30 things that 
we'll make this place more money. And that's kind of what they hired me to do. And another, another strong point of mine is I can look at an empty building and I can tell you, uh, this is the design that needs, it needs to be, this is the concept it needs to be, and this is how we're going to run it. And, uh, you know, so there, that's another part of the job to help reconcept and remodel some new expansion projects as well. So it's, it's, um, it's exciting, you know, it's my first week, so I'm really just in the observing phase, you know, just kind of following some of the managers and the staff around and, Mm -hmm. you know, asking questions like, so why do you do that? Why do you put this here? What is this? You know? (laughs) Um, And then on the other side of it, you know, I'm in the office like, okay, where, why are we using this vendor? I know a guy who can save us more money on this product. Let's say, let's cut some of these costs, you know, like this doesn't make sense. Let's do this. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's really exciting because, um, a lot of their venues are very creative, you know, so I get to be a part of like the creative process where we're opening a new nightclub next week. And we were in a kind of a thinking meeting, uh, writing ideas on the board. And (laughs) if you see the ideas on the board, you'd be like, there's no way this is a real job, you know? So it's like, Hey, like, what if we what if we did this where we had the somebody on the bar and they have a big leather strap and they hit some, you know, like just weird stuff. Like, right. Just throwing anything at the board and seeing if it sticks. Yeah. It's like, what if we had a drink that changed colors when you did this? And you know, like, so it, it, I have a lot of creative freedom and, um, and a team that's open to hearing it. And, you know, I, I certainly believe there's, there's no bad ideas. I mean, there are bad ideas, but, bad ideas always can spawn into good ideas. So everyone just say what's, what's in your mind and let's run with it. You know, let's, let's extrapolate from there. Right. It's all, it's all perspective. There's no good or bad. It's just get it all out and we'll, and we'll make with it what we can. Yeah. So I'm in a position to facilitate that sort of, that sort of stuff and then see it in execution. Well, I think, I think that sounds awesome. And I'm really happy that you found a place where you can go to work every day and feel like you're doing what you love. Um, we're getting close to our stopping point, but before you go, uh, a little thing I like to do with my fitter faster clinicians that I work with is, and I'm going to put you on the spot here because we actually didn't go over this before the interview. Um, I want to know your favorite question that you get at fitter faster camps and we can talk about any the answer that you usually give for that. Um, well, I'll tell you my the my favorite question is the one question I've only gotten once, and I was caught off guard. It was a clinic that me, Roland Schumann, and a gentleman, I believe he was a German uh, distance swimmer named Finn Manuth. I believe he was an NCAA champ as well. Yeah, he was a really good five hundred guy. Yeah. Uh, it was his first clinic and me and Roland were there. Roland's a great clinician, by the way. Great guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a lot from him and he and I have always exchanged ideas, but let me, let me not get off topic. Uh, a li- <laughs> maybe like a six or seven year old girl uh, asked a question and, and <laughs> it was, I can barely say it. And uh, she goes, 
why are you all so good looking? <laughs> <laughs> and oh my gosh. And her mom turned bright red. Oh my gosh, her mom was mortified. And we, that is that is so freaking cute for a little girl. It, it was so innocent and just like she was legitimately like curious. And I mean, oh my gosh, like we just died laughing. I and none of us really knew how to answer it. And it was just like, well, uh, ask your mom. I, I, you know, we all just really like became bumbling idiots. Like, <laughs> it was just, oh my God. Oh man. It was so funny. And how, and how Actually, did you no, I don't remember if it was, a, I don't remember if it was a little girl or a little guy. I don't know if that really changes the story, but it was still just, but, but how'd so you answer hilarious. it? Dude, I don't remember. I was just like, fum- we were all just so speechless and fumbling. It, I think we gave some generic answer of like, oh, you know, like just God made us that way. Or <laughs> you know, like everybody's good looking on the inside. You know, I don't remember. It was just, well, it, I, 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 was, I was laughing so hard though. <laughs> I love that. Um, I think we're going to stop but it. An actual, I think an actual gonna... question. Oh, you want to go for an actual one? Okay, go I'll, ahead. I'll give you an actual question. I, it, a big one I get is new is nutrition because, you know, I do have the nutrition major and, you know, um, parents always ask like, well, what should you eat the night before? Because we, you know, we'd make a big pasta dinner for all the kids. It's like, well, that doesn't do anything. You know, Carb yeah. loading is a myth. And so I think nutrition questions are usually very important. And, you know, I always say I stress common sense nutrition because at, at their age, like I can go over micros and macros and, you know, LDL cholesterol and all this other stuff. And they're just going to look at me like, whatever, dude. But if I tell them, hey, maybe you shouldn't eat a Big Mac, you should eat a a piece of grilled chicken, you know, people will understand that more so, you know, so I I stress like common sense nutrition, like, and also a big thing I stress is I tell the parents, they always say like, well, my kid has, you know, he eats terribly and he has a bad diet. I'm like, okay, who pays for the groceries? Like, well, well, I do the grocery shopping. It's like, okay, then stop buying bad stuff and he will stop eating bad stuff. Like, (laughs) it's on you, parent, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Yeah, so I think that's always a good answer to kind of tell, remind the parents that the power is kind of in their hands. That is a tough thing to navigate with kids. And it sounds like you do it with a plum by, like, you're not going to tell a 10-year-old not to eat ice cream, right? Like, yeah. we're not, we're not going to be like, all right, you need to go on a keto diet tomorrow. Exactly. If you ever eat a Big Mac again, you're going to die, right? Yeah. But, yeah. but I love that idea of just common sense, like... We know, every single person knows that candy is bad for you, but if you want to eat candy at the movie theater every once in a while, sure, go for it. But exactly, but dessert isn't a routine where you're just crushing, you know, a box of nerds or a bag of sour patch kids every night. Yeah, and we cool. have a problem. Well, we'll leave it there. Um, Elvis Burroughs, professional uh, nutrition and hand- <laughs> be handsome, faster kids. Um, if people want to find <laughs> out more about you, where can they find you, Elvis? Uh, whatever social media you have, it's that website.com slash Elvis VB, V as in victory, B as in boy. That's pretty much my, that's my, uh, that's my trademark there. So Instagram, Facebook, uh, what else, what, what do the kids use these days? I'm not on TikTok. No, not doing that. So yeah, don't, I'm even out. Look, don't even look for me there. I, I don't even want to touch but, TikTok. It seems like it's. I, that might be the first one that I'm just like, not even judgment towards it. I just might not be prepared for it. Like it seems like the first one that has progressed beyond my own ability to use social media. I, 
I think that, yeah, I think that's kind of the thing where it's like when we got Facebook and then like your aunt showed up and you're like, ah, Facebook was for us, not you. And then we moved to Instagram and it's like, all right, this is us. I think TikTok is kind of like, it's for them, the kids now. And like, if I jump on it, it's like, why are you here? (laughs) Maybe that's, I'm now the, I'm now the uncle, you know, maybe that's the big shift in millennials. And now that, now that the zoomers are the first generation to be raised with social media, because it kind of came late for us. Yeah. Um, maybe the millennial um, improvement that we make is leaving the Zoomers to their platforms, right? Exactly. Like letting yeah. this, letting the 13 through 21 year olds have TikTok, and it's like, you know what? I'm just gonna post an Instagram every time I climb a cool mountain or I go to the beach with my wife or something, right? <laughs> like, yeah, that's, um, I'm on that level now. Yeah, it's a good level to be at. It's very comfortable. So again, you can find them Elvis VB, uh, which stands for Elvis Victory Boy. <laughs> on any social media (laughs) you may use except for tiktok uh it's great talking to you buddy i love our chats i'll talk to you soon okay okay all right catch you later see ya bye all right that's the show uh special thank you to elvis for coming on i hope you all enjoyed it and if you did rate review and subscribe on apple or spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you have any questions, you can DM the pod at Pro Corner Podcast on Instagram or email the pod at austin at procornerpodcast.com. Keep an eye out over the next couple of weeks. I've got a lot of great interviews lined up with some really cool people. Um, there's going to be a lot of content, especially over the next couple of months around the International Swim League, which is starting up next week. And that's going to include a couple interviews with the athletes that are over there in Budapest, just doing like a little day in the life. This is what I'm up to while I'm quarantined in a swimming bubble for six weeks in a foreign country. (laughs) So if that sounds like something you're into, uh, keep an eye out. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for stopping by.